lessons in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light 'em up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is November the 6th, 2007. Let's see. 6th November. In exactly one year from today, he will have gone away. Well, not quite. He will still be in the White House, of course. He will not um, have made his departure, but we will have elected a new Presidente. Uh, we will see her face there in the White House um, in January of 2008. Anyway, mark the calendar, count the days, and remember, this too shall pass away. Today is 6, 6 November 2007. We've got a year to go. Okay, so many things to do. Ah, oh, so many things to do, so many places to go. Let's see. Ah, oh, I made a list of 18 things that each and every one of us should do this week. Ah, I'm going to make it. Let's see. Oh, uh, an artist that I like, Marianne Hayden. Is it Hayden? Right. She's opening her um, uh, new uh, gallery opening, 10th November, this Saturday at... Alta's Gallery, the Alta Gallery, A-L-T-A. My old pal Alta has an art gallery. It's right behind the Elmwood movie. Up on college, you know, you get to college in Ashby, and you go right around that little alleyway behind the Elmwood movie. There's the Alta Gallery. I'm going to check that out. Saturday is the reception, etc. But you can go anytime after Saturday and see Marianne's Art and photos. Tonight, tonight, tonight at Moe's Books. The old guard, Moe's Books tonight. Oh, 7 or 7.30. I've lost the piece of the newspaper that told me whether it was 7 or 7.30. Joanne Kiger. And, uh, and another poet, yes. Moe's Bookstore. Uh, Moe's is between Dwight and Haste on Telegraph. If you live in Berkeley, you know where Moe's is. It's been there since, well, I think it was there when I came here in 1951. Anyway, it's on the corner there. Uh, Joanne Kiger, I've got a book in front of me here, which I'm not going to read you her poetry. I'll let Joanne read you her poetry tonight. I have to go down to Moe's. Ah, I'm looking here. According to this biographical sketch of Joanne, she is several months younger than I am, born in 1934, yes, Robert Duncan called her, 
she and those uh, poets out there, she called them, he called them the Bolinas Bucolics. I love it. <laughs> the terrific, terrific picture of Joanna, I have this book in front of me called Women of the Beat Generation, uh, forward by Annie Waldman. This book has been out for a long time. It's about the writers, artists, and muses. At the heart of a revolution, there were some women, yes. Konari Press put this book out a long time ago. That's interesting. It's a wonderful picture of Joanne Kiger in Japan in front of the Buddha. <laughs> yes. The Buddha, the Buddha. Let's see. And there's the history of this woman. It's an amazing woman. Uh, let's see. Her second book came out from Black Sparrow Press. And my pal Alicia Ostricker wrote about this book, uh, Joanne Kiger's book. Alicia Ostricker wrote in the Partisan Review, Risking folly, let us propose that Joanne Kiger is a genius, though a weird one. Handling her work is like handling a porcupine traveling at the speed of light. She is not disciplined, but is a radically original combination of symbolist eh, and comedian. Right. Mm, I remember that was back in the days when I got turned on by Alan Watts. I was pretty basic. I needed Alan Watts to get me interested. Uh, here's what she says. She says that the squares in Alan Watts spoke of, the Zen of the established tradition, was not an accessible practice for me. But the sheer caprice of beat Zen with its digging of the universe, seemed out of hand, too. I mean, sitting, uh, let's see, and Suzuki San Francisco Zen Center, when I returned, I was struck with the simplicity of Zazen. Yes. Nothing to prove, nothing to gain. There you go. <laughs> I used to say, in those days, I used to say, in bed by ten means more than Zen. Yes, sober up, Jennifer, I said to myself. Uh, Joanne Kiger says, I was also grateful for the established traditional rules of the Zendo. Unquestioned, the rules that allowed one's mind freedom within the form. And this uh, account of women in the Beat Generation goes on to say that Buddhism was a major influence on Beat writers of philosophy and teaching that they embraced in rejection of 50s materialism. For a literature in celebration of the open mind and the open road, Buddhism offered a transcendental grace and deeper consciousness for Kerouac's spiritually weary, seeking generation. Joanne Kiger's poetry is exemplary of Buddhist consciousness in beat writing of a sensibility for which wisdom is the greatest beauty. Yes, indeed, yes. Aha, truth and beauty still dating. That's what they're doing. <laughs> what I wanted to say was in the broad sweeping form of being there. I am walking up the path. I come home and wash my hair. I am bereft, I dissolve quickly, I am everybody. My vision is a large golden room where your ancestors dwell, and you give your heart to them, 
and having given your heart to them, you're there to move out from that source, God's Mountain, Sun Street. I want a smaller thing in mind, like a good dinner. I'm tired of these big things happening. They happen to me all the time. It is true there is power within us, but I am so improperly trained. Mostly it is get your own thing going, facing each day's rise and set. Maya, Maya, on the foot afternoon I am veering closely back and forth. Oh, half moon behind the slim holder of the lotus. Oh, she's a poet. Joanne Kiger. Oh, who was that woman? Oh, come over and visit. Oh, it's all past. Gone. 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 There, I read it. I didn't mean to, because I can't do it as well as she does. Anyway, Joanne Kiger will be at Moe's tonight at... Uh, Seven or seven thirty. <laughs> Get there early. Buy her new book. Buy her new poems. Um, and hang out with the old guard. Uh, now, I had planned today to read and talk about a great uh, literati, Doris Lessing. So many things to say about Doris Lessing. She has won the Nobel Prize for Literature, yes. And I was moved to reread a whole bunch of her stuff, and even some stuff that I had not read yet. Ah, such an amazing mind. I remember, yes, the time she came here. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't think that... Many young people quite get it with Doris Lessing. She's in her 80s now, and it is late in the day for her to get her Nobel Prize. Uh, when she came here, I don't think many of uh, the people who work here knew who she was. Well, some, of course, they did. Of course, they did. I'm just uh, getting to be a bit of a curmudgeon myself. I'm... Uh, I'm put off by, oh, the, the late-night comedians this week. Um, I heard one of them making fun of <laughs> the Nobel Prize. Yes, they had a picture of Doris Lessing. I don't know whether it was the Colbert Report or uh, uh, one of those guys, you know, one of those late-night comedians. He was mixing her up uh, with the character actress uh, who plays the mother-in-law on Everybody Loves Raymond, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, uh, they were trying to make the point that um, great literary figures are not exactly, uh, uh, what is that, household names in our culture. But um, I think that there's a certain number of folks, there's a tribe, there's a literary tribe who know and love these folks. Uh, to me, Doris Lessing is the original consciousness-raising writer from the 60s in my uh, late middle age of course it was Toni Morrison uh, I was thinking about that Toni Morrison I was watching Oprah Winfrey do a movie last night uh, 
beloved, and I uh, got in a big stew about that, thinking of Toni Morrison and Oprah Winfrey and Oprah's recent problems, and oh dear, Jennifer, don't go off in that direction, yes, go off for one minute, yes, I was thinking of the terrible problems uh, of racism in the late 20th century, and Doris Lessing dealt with problems of caste and class, and she was in South Africa, of course, and she had the universals down pat. Toni Morrison is a little bit uh, closer to the bone here at home. Uh, I thought of Oprah Winfrey now in the 21st century as a kind of Harriet Tubman trying to carry these young girls across the Ohio River into the New World. She opened a school for young girls, a leadership school. But the staff, the staff turned out to be monsters. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Reminds me of the uh, all the parables and metaphors in the movie Beloved. Yes, the fellow called School Teacher, the evil, sinister rat in, in Beloved. Uh, it's a character. Someone, a sadist, uh, who uh, internalizes, well, he, he's, he symbolizes, let's see, kind of a Simon Legree, the humiliations uh, of slavery. And the book, Beloved, is about a woman trying to save her children, and she would rather kill them than let them uh, live in slavery. The book was still very hard for a lot of people to understand. The movie didn't go over. Uh, but as I watched it, I thought of all those nooses going up in the schoolyards across the nation here today and all the internalized humiliations and pain that still exist just under the surface, under the veneer of civilization. You know, Ophra's trying to educate us uh, trying to save the children, trying to teach us to trust our own feelings. There's a wonderful character in Beloved, the old grandmother. She preaches out in the forest, not in the the uh, uh, Christian institutions, but out in the woods there. Uh, she gets everyone dancing and singing, and she tells them to love themselves. She teaches self-love, the love of one's own flesh, the flesh of one's own family. You know, the hands and feet and eyes and ears of all our children, our beloveds. Uh, and I listened to that, and then I heard the pundits on the radio saying that Oprah Winfrey has uh, overreached herself trying to save these children in South Africa, who does she think she is? <laughs> Grandiose, you know, money isn't enough to change a society, that's true enough, that's true enough. <laughs> anyway, uh, I thought of the resentment, of course, uh, uh, celebrity brings out um, the underside of people's characters, and they look at her and they look at Oprah Winfrey and they say, well, there, she's trying to be, oh, she's trying to play God. She wants to be Lady Bountiful. So, uh, yes, the goddess of retribution, Nemesis, is coming along and giving her her comeuppance. Actually, I think Oprah Winfrey can turn this current mess into something very brave and courageous and she can uh, straighten it all out. Uh, 
She's not the head of a billion-dollar corporation for nothing. Of course, all these echoes of past crimes, of history and injustice. When was it not so? When were there not echoes of old, old crimes? History is a nightmare from which we are trying to awaken. Through the fountain of our tears, we make another pot of soup. Yes, Joanne Kiger's dinner, yes. Make another pot of soup. Bake the bread, clean the house, do whatever we can to make things better. Oprah Winfrey is trying, trying to make things better. Good is done in minute particulars, one thing at a time. Hillary Clinton knows that. Yes, warrior women doing their jobs. Yes, working with all their hearts, putting faith in the caregivers. Never mind the naysayers, you know. Uh, Hillary Clinton has three words. Just say yes. Propaganda. It's always best when you can uh, boil it down to three syllables. Yes, we can. One more time. Yes, love is all there's time for. Just do it. Now, I want to spend uh, the rest of my time today with uh, the major mentor of my own life, the great Doris Lessing. Uh, she won't be with us too long. She's in her late 80s. And she's strong and very, very powerful. But she probably is not going to be traveling that much. I hope we can get her on uh, the air here, get her voice on. Uh, the book, I was going to read to you from the Golden Notebook, but that one is so familiar and everyone has it on their shelf. It's all about women who wake up, women who become aware, women who get it. The the book that I'd like to look at today is called Shikasta. It's one of the uh, science fiction books. Uh, Canopus in Argos, the archives regarding a colonized planet number five. It's all parable, a fable. That's what I love. Um, someone told me the other day that uh, I was in a post-symbolist soup. I can't help it. I just, I'm a mythomaniac. I love all these uh uh, parables and uh, uh, psychological, historical documents. Anyway, uh, here she is off on a, another planet. Uh, uh, the people on this planet are having some problems. And as I read it to you, you will understand that this parable is just about... Um, just about hitting the nail on the head. Written a long time ago, but it <laughs> it is universal, it is eternal, it is us now. Uh, I wanted to read you the stuff about the cat, but it's too sweet. I'll skip the cat. Um, maybe next time I'll read about the cat. I have a new cat named Dementia. And uh, cat parables are just uh, just my favorites. Anyway... This section is, she writes, in a sense, a continuation of additional explanatory information for the archivists. She writes, it is a long time, time since 
Shikastans were able to bear their lives. Shikastans live on this special planet, number five. Since they were able to bear their lives without drugs of some kind, I look back and see that they had had to dull the pain of their condition. Of course, there have always been individuals, a few, for whom this was not true. Alcohol and the hallucinogens, the derivatives of opium, cocoa, and tobacco, the derivatives, pardon me, <clears throat> the derivatives of opium, cocoa, and tobacco, <clears throat> chemicals, caffeine, when have they not been used? I begin with the crude ones, the obvious comforters and softeners of reality. But there is no need to infringe on areas of work done by my colleagues and about which information is plentifully available in our archives. Of the emotional props, there have been no end but now in this time. Few retain their substance, their solidity. I can define what I mean exactly by saying that on this visit of mine now to Shikostra, I could use exactly the same words to describe, let us say, a religion as I did, but that a major fact would be left out. This is a feeling, an atmosphere. The religions of Shikasta are no less, even though they have lost their power to tyrannize. New religious sects proliferate, and the Extatogenous sects, most of all. But what has happened is that the skies of Shikasta have been lifted. They have sent men to their moon and machines to their fellow planets. And most people believe that Shikasta is visited by spacecraft from other planets. The words, the languages of religion, and all religions rely on emotional image-breeding words, have become weightier and more portentous, yet at the same time transparent and slippery. A Shikasta saying star, galaxy, universe, sky, heaven uses the same words but does not mean the same things as did his fathers of only a century ago. A certainty has gone, a solidity, religion, always the most powerful of the reality blunters, has lost its certainties. Not long ago, a hundred years, it was possible for members of a religion to believe it was better than any other. And they were the only people in the whole world likely to be saved. But now this frame of mind can stand only as long as they keep their minds closed to their own history. The nationalisms of Shikasta, that pernicious new creed which uses much of the energies that once fed religions, are strong. New nations are born every day, and with each a generation of its young men and women steps forward ready to die for the Shimra. And whereas so recently, not more than a generation or two generations, it was possible for a Shikastan to spend a life thinking not much further than a village or a town, only just able to grasp the concept of nation, 
Now, while nation is strong, devouring, so is the idea of the whole world as an interacting whole. To die for a country cannot have the conviction it did. So recently, a hundred years ago or fifty, it was possible for the members of a nation to believe that this little patch of Shikasta was better than all the others, more noble, free, and good. But recently, even the most self-regarding and self-worshipping nation has had to see that it is the same as the rest, and that each lies, tortures, deludes its people, and bleeds them in the interests of a dominant class and falls apart, as must happen in these terrible end days. Politics, political parties which attract exactly the same emotions as religions did and do, as nations did and do, spawn new creeds every day. Not long ago it was possible for members of a political sect to believe that it was pristine and noble and best. But there have been so many betrayals and disappointments, so many lies, turnings about, so much murdering and torturing and insanity, that even the most frantic supporters know times of disbelief. Science, the most recent of the religions, as bigoted and as inflexible as any, has created a way of life, a technology, attitudes of mind, increasingly loathed and distrusted. Not long ago, a scientist knew he was the great culminator and crown of all human thinking, knowledge, progress, and behaved with according arrogance. But now they begin to know their own smallness, and the fouled and spoiled earth itself rises up against them in witness. Everywhere ideas, sets of mind, beliefs that have supported people for centuries are fraying away, dissolving, going. What is there left? <laughs> this... This section goes on and on and on. It's all very funny. I love it. Uh, the best parts are the ones about men and women uh, <laughs> and uh, about the uses of poetry. Uh, oh, dear. In all of man's history, she writes, he has been able to restore himself with the sight of leaves in autumn, leaves that will sink back into the earth or with the look of a crumbling wall with sun on it or some white bones at the edge of a stream. And she goes on to describe uh, two people standing together above the city, uh, trying to restore themselves, trying to find, uh, let's call it, a reason for living again. Uh, but she says they have to force themselves, yes, uh, one of them takes up a leaf from the pavement, carries it home, stares at it. There it lies in a palm, a brilliant gold, a curled, curved, sculptured thing, balanced like a feather ready to float and to glide, 
There it rests lightly, for a breath may move it in that loosely open, slightly damp human palm. And the mind meditating there sees its supporting ribs, the myriads of its veins branching and rebranching its capillaries, the minuscule areas of its flesh which are not, as it seems to this brooding human eye, fragments of undifferentiated substance. I thought of this paragraph, yes, I'm breaking in here, when I picked up the magnolia leaves I was walking to the radio station today, and I kept picking up the magnolia leaves, but I tried to pick the ones that were the shiniest, you know, the the prettiest, and I filled my purse with them, and I'm going to take them home, and of course they're going to crumble all over my desk, and by Christmas I will have had to throw them away. Uh, this is that that preoccupation that comes to old people, you know, trying to see the world in a wild flower. These were some bits and passages from Doris Lessing's wonderful meditation on us and on man's future, or lack of man's future, in her book, Shikasta, S-H-I-K-A-S-T-A, Shikasta. This one actually was published in, let me tell you when, very long time ago, in the, in 1979. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday at 8.20 till then. Go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Would you like to own beautiful, original art but can't afford it? Art sale to be held at 1924 Cedar Street at Bonita at the